It's a bad world out there. So take solace in the word on Solace Radio. In our series, Living in Babylon, as we begin working through the book of Daniel, in our opening message, the Babylonians are coming. We looked at the message of Habakkuk, one of the final prophetic messages that was spoken to the people of Judah before the initial group of exiles were taken into Babylon. You'll remember that the exiles went in, in basically in three stages. And the first stage happened in the approximately the year 606 BCE. Um, and, and so we looked at what would have been one of the final prophetic messages, uh, to the, uh, to the people of Judah prior to the exile. In Habakkuk, we learn that the righteous will live by faith. That the righteous will trust God. That they'll trust God is at work even when the circumstances, even when what is right in front of my eyes, when the circumstances scream at me, God is not here. God couldn't possibly be here. That's what the evidence in front of me says. Faith says, yes, he is. Abraham was an old man, remember? He was an old man. And God had made a promise to him that he would have a son. His wife was old. Ten years later, the promise was still not fulfilled. And we read that God reiterates the promise. And it says, Abraham believed God. He trusted God. And God credited to him his righteousness. Even when the reality, the reality said, Abraham, you're not going to have a kid. Right? The Lord said, yes, you are. So when it's God's word versus what you see, righteousness is trusting him. Living by what he says, not just by the circumstances. The righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk teaches us that faith is allowed to ask questions. Habakkuk has looked around at what's happening in the world, what's happening in Judah, and he's called out to God, look at what's going on. Look at the wickedness around me. Aren't you going to do something about it? And the Lord says, yeah, actually I'm going to. I'm going to, I'm going to judge Judah. And I'm going to use the Babylonians to do it. And as as this part of the conversation begins between Habakkuk and the Lord, we learn that faith not only can ask God questions, but faith can live with seemingly confusing answers. Habakkuk, he's like, wait a minute, Lord. You know, the Babylonians? Well, back up. Them? I mean, they're worse than we are. You would use them to accomplish your purposes? I don't agree with your method. Lord. And the Lord says, oh yeah, no, I, they're bad. They're actually worse than you realize. <laughs> so he's got this, this answer that doesn't fit his framework, doesn't make sense to him. And then finally, Habakkuk teaches us that faith can carry us through the most difficult circumstances. The message of Habakkuk closes with a passage that hopefully had landed in the hearts of the captives being carried off to Babylon as Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael and the others were forcibly being ripped away from all they had ever known. As Jerusalem and Judah were fading from sight, perhaps Habakkuk's song of faith in the midst of suffering strengthened them and carried them in the midst of this harsh new reality. The passage 
says, though the fig tree doesn't blossom and there's no yield on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, the flock is cut off from the fold and there's no cattle in the stalls, yet will I triumph in Adonai. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Adonai, my Lord, is my strength. He has made my feet like a deer's and will make me walk on my high places. Even though everything says God's not here, even though there's nothing, no fruitfulness, the vines are empty, there's barrenness, it's pain and suffering, yet will I trust in Adonai. And we opened our worship this morning seeing that, didn't we? We said, blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where the streams of abundance flow will bless your name. And blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. No matter what, I'm going to praise Him. I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to walk in faithfulness. So I can picture them in shackles, in with confusion and questions. These boys being carried off to Babylon, saying, blessed be your name. I trust you, Lord. As we look at the opening verses of the book of Daniel this morning, the first thing that we need to recognize is the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering and wickedness. In the midst of Babylon, in the midst of this choose-your-own-adventure book, God is still the author. God is still sovereign. You know, I love to read um, and I love to watch movies. I love stories. I love good literature, whether that literature is in print or that literature has been turned into, has been acted out theatrically. Um, and my favorite stories personally are adventurous ones. I like adventure. Um, as a child, I loved the Narnia books or later the Lord of the Rings books. I love escaping into the adventure of Jason Bourne. I like that his life is on the line, not mine. <laughs> yeah. And, and Indiana Jones. I mean, I, you know, we, we love to watch it. We're like eating our popcorn perfectly safe. And uh, all the danger is in there. And that's where the adventure lies. My wife, she loves romantic uh, stories. She loves all the Jane Austen stories. Um, Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility and Emma, all these. Also, she actually introduced me years ago to one... Uh, a series called Mark of the Lion. It's a three-book series by Francine Rivers. If you have never read it, it's a faith-based uh, fictional series that is like gripping, like right from the get-go. It takes place at the burning of Jerusalem in 70 CE and follows this Jewish girl. It's incredible. So if you've never read it, it's uh, called Mark of the Lion series. It's really good. So I love this kind of stuff. Uh, and when you consider what makes a story good, what makes a story great... One of the factors is in making a story great is conflict, right? I mean, when you're a kid and you're taught to write stories, the key element to making a story, a good story or a great story, is conflict. If you remove the danger from the adventure, it's no longer an adventure. You're just going for a walk. <laughs> If you don't hit that moment where you're holding your breath because Frodo and the crew are facing potential potential death or capture, it's not adventure. And if you're watching comedy or something like that, 
you usually have to have some sort of chaotic element introduced to keep the story moving, to keep the people laughing. If you're watching a romantic movie, okay, if you remove the frustrating parts, right, they're like, oh, somebody say something. You know that part? Like, they just miss each other. Oh my gosh, I hate that they just miss each other and you're dying through it. I watch these movies with my wife. (laughs) All the wondering, the misunderstandings. No, you shouldn't have said it that way. Oh my gosh. Shouldn't have said that. If you take that away, you lose what makes the story interesting. The building tension of if or how or when Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet will fall in love and end up together. It keeps you turning the pages, keeps you watching the movie. In fact, when a story becomes too predictable, it might be an entertaining story past the time, but it isn't great. I don't know about you, but I tend to roll my eyes at certain levels of predictability, like, okay, come on. Like, okay... My life, my wife loves the romantic Hallmark movies. I can, within 10 minutes, I know, I mean, I know this guy that she's dating right now and she's gonna marry, he's not paying any attention to her, he's totally focused on business, this isn't gonna work out, this goofy guy whose career isn't taking off, but he's just such a nice guy, she's gonna end up with him. Uh, and we're just going to watch this thing happen. And I already know that. I'm actually always pleasantly surprised when they throw me for a loop. I'm like, oh, I didn't see that coming. That was good. That was good. They surprised me with one. We're entertained by the conflict in fictional stories. But in our lives, in our realities... The very elements that make the stories that we watch or that we read interesting are the very elements that give us anxiety. They're the very elements that we are trying to remove from our lives. We're trying to get out of our lives. The conflict, the anxiety, the uncertainty, the frustration. In real life, we hate the conflict. We complain when something unpredictable throws us for a loop. Why, God? Did this have to happen to me? When it comes to our own lives, we'd really, we really want the story to just stay put in the shire. Right? We don't really want to venture out and head toward Mordor. <laughs> One of the things that we don't have when we watch movies or read stories, though, is control. We have no control over where the story is going or what's happening. We can't really participate. In fact, when I was a kid, um, someone invented a different type of book. They invented what were called choose-your-own-adventure books. Do you guys remember choose-your-own-adventure books? Okay. So these were great. In your choose-your-own-adventure book, you'd get to the end of a chapter, and it would give you a choice. You know, choose this, and you go to page 45. Choose that, you go to page 85. And so what you would do is you would just keep your finger there, and you would check page 45. Let's see where this starts to go. You would check page 85. You'd kind of look into the future and then make your choice based on that. I mean, if you were like me, some people are really adventurous. I think I couldn't even get adventurous in the choose your own adventure book. <laughs> like, well, let's see how it's going to turn out before I make a decision. <laughs> 
And so now, and the books were actually relatively short. So you'd only end up reading, uh, you know, like an, a fourth of the book, maybe because of all the decisions you didn't make. Uh, so you could go back and try different options and see how it all worked out. Um, but the Choose Your Own Adventure book was a fun and a brilliant concept. It was a, it was a cooperative effort between the author and the reader. As the reader, I was participating with the author, but at the end of the day, it was still the author's story. The author had still written the story, but I was cooperating with that story. In many ways, we are walking with God in this Choose Your Own Adventure story. I'm quite certain that if you want to like if you want to like argue about it I'm certain the analogy will fall short somewhere okay it's an analogy but on some level it really holds true it's it's a helpful comparison you know in the believing world there's often a theological debate over free will versus the sovereignty of god is god sovereign or do we have free will and the answer is yes <laughs> He is sovereign and we have free will. And I believe that the scripture, I think the book of Daniel, shows this incredible intersection between the sovereign author and us freely choosing whether to trust him and obey or whether we will trust ourselves and disobey the Lord. The infinitely brilliant and wise sovereign author knows the infinite number of choices. His book is much bigger. Than ours. He knows the infinite number of choices and the results that are available as we choose our own adventure. As our choices intersect with each other, as you, all of your choices and all of my choices and the choices of everyone out there intersect with one another, intersecting with his overarching plan. You know, he says, for instance, here's life on page 45 and here's death on page 85. And then he whispers to us, Psst, choose life. Choose life. Or he doesn't really whisper it. He shouts it. Choose life that you and your children may live, that you and your descendants may live. The author knows the preferred direction of his story, right? Don't eat from the fruit. That's the preferred direction. But... He knows every choice, every result of every choice. No matter which choices are made, he's still the author. And in the end, he will make sure that the book arrives at the conclusion he has planned. His overarching book, his overarching story. And as we enter into the stories of Daniel and Hananiah, and Azariah, and Mishael, and Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar, and the others, we are reminded that at the end of the day, they are participating in God's story. They are participating in the story that He is writing. In the Hadashah, in the New Covenant Scriptures, in the famous chapter of Hebrews 11, there is an allusion to two of the more famous events from the book of Daniel. As the author, you know, goes through listing so many of the uh, folks from the different people from throughout the Tanakh who had lived out their faith. He says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen, right? When circumstances, when what you see says God's not here, faith says, yes, he is. It's the evidence that what I don't see is real. In verse 
uh, Hebrews 11.33 says, By faith they shut the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire. So there's this allusion to some famous uh, events in Daniel, in the book of Daniel. So the writer of Hebrews goes through, completes the famous list, and then he says there, he says, after he's gone through this whole list of people, he says, now, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also get rid of every weight and entangling sin. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, focusing on Yeshua, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And the word perfect there is from the Greek words uh, telemeo, which means like to complete, to complete. So, so to the conclusion, the goal, um, like when you read in uh, Romans 10.4 and it says, for Messiah is the end of the law, teleos. He is the end of the law. He actually says he is the completion, the goal of the Torah. He's where it was going. So Yeshua is the one who starts our story and brings it to its goal, to its end, to its conclusion, to its purpose, to its perfection. He is the perfecter of your faith. So let's read from uh, the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. We know that the one who started the story will perfect it. That he will complete it. That the Lord is the author of this choose-your-own-adventure, cooperate-with-my-purposes story. Verse 1, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And God gave King Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and put the vessels into the treasure house of his God. So King Nebuchadnezzar is on a, he's conquering. Okay, he's not, he wasn't, you have to remember, Judah wasn't what he was after, it was along the way. And he's just, he's conquering. He's, he is, sat down with his officials, with his generals, and they've made a plan about what direction they're going. And they arrive at Jerusalem, and they besiege Jerusalem. He Nebuchadnezzar acted. Nebuchadnezzar made decisions. He acted. He attacked. But here's the important part to recognize. Nebuchadnezzar was not in charge of the outcome of the attack. He was not in charge of the outcome. The scripture says, God gave King Jehoiachin of Judah into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, if you're living in Judah in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign, and you're living in Babylon in the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign, and Nebuchadnezzar is king, and this is happening... If you're there, from everything that you can see, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar's in charge. That Nebuchadnezzar's winning. That Nebuchadnezzar's making the decisions. That the gods of the Babylonians are in charge. That's what your eyes tell you. That's what the circumstances tell you. That's reality. After all, they were able to plunder the temple. Remember, remember what Jeremiah had said to the people of Israel? He had said to the people of Judah, he said, man, you're, you keep saying 
This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You keep trusting in these deceptive words, and they won't save you. You keep thinking that because you've got the temple, that it's your amulet, that it's your special magic rabbit's foot that will keep you safe. And you're using God as though he's some sort of magic, and he's not. You're using this temple like it's some sort of magic thing, and it's not. What matters is the Lord. You're trusting in deceptive words. But the people kept thinking, we're good, we're safe. And now, it looks like we're not good. And the temple has been plundered. The vessels have been taken out, and these people weren't struck down. What's going on? And they were taken to Babylon, to Shinar, which Shinar is where, if you read in Genesis 11, that's the place where the Tower of Babel was actually built. Um, and so they're taken there and put into the houses of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. And this sends this clear message that the gods of the Babylonians have conquered the God of Israel. That's, that's the message that the people hear. And see, that's what Babylonians believe and what probably some of the Judeans believed. Our God, where, where'd God, how did this happen? How could this happen? How could God, is God, is God even, is, did we believe wrong all along? Is there really a God? Is the, is the God of, because we've lost so clearly our God is not the most powerful God. There are going to be some people whose faith has been crushed by the by the circumstances. Whose faith has been shattered by what they see. Except for this fact. Here's the reality. About a hundred years earlier, in the year 701, during the reign of Hezekiah, when Isaiah was prophet, you might remember that the Assyrians, not the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Assyrians ended up attacking the northern kingdom. But the Assyrians came and they surrounded Jerusalem. Nearly 200,000 troops surrounding Jerusalem. And Hezekiah is freaked out. He's got a strategy that he's going to try to ally himself with the Egyptians. Um, but he he's a, a righteous enough king to say, let me call on the Lord. So he calls for the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah comes to him and says, hey... You don't have to rely on the Egyptians, but know this. If you read in Isaiah 36 through 39, there's this, this whole story in there that correlates actually with what you read at the end of first or second Kings, around second Kings 20, before and after. And he, he says, look, the Lord's not going to let the Assyrians win. The Lord's going to protect Jerusalem for his name's sake and for the sake of his servant David. God's going to protect Jerusalem. So don't fear. And that night, Hezekiah prays, calls on the Lord. Isaiah comes back and says, hey, because you prayed, because you called on the Lord, everything's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. Um, I'm going to protect Jerusalem. And, and then we read on, the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 uh, Assyrians. Boom, gone. Hezekiah, and the king of Assyria says, you know, I think we're going to go home. <laughs> and, and he leaves. So things looked really bad 100 years earlier. And God gave them another opportunity. So Hezekiah is feeling pretty good. News arrives in Babylon about, um, oh, excuse me, Hezekiah is feeling good, but then Hezekiah gets sick. And he doesn't just get sick. He doesn't have a cold. He's sick unto death. He's going to die. Um, and so he prays to God to heal him. And God heals him and says, I'm going to let you live 15 more years. Sweet. And he recovers. 
Okay, great, great story. God comes through, gives him a set time. He knows, I got 15 years. So then, the king of Babylon finds out Hezekiah got sick, he's better, and so he sends him gifts. Hey, I'm glad you got better, here's some gifts. Now you don't send gifts via FedEx and UPS in those days. Amazon can't deliver gifts in 701. So, so they sent a group of, he sends his entourage to Hezekiah with gifts. And Hezekiah is so pleased with the gifts, um, and, and he's like, hey, yeah, thank you so much. And he decides to show the Babylonians everything he's got. All his silver, his gold, armory, everything in his treasuries, everything. Isaiah 39 2 says there was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. So Hezekiah is showing off. Okay, he's acting, he's acting like, even because he's the king, that this is his. Right? He's not saying, look what the Lord has done. He's saying, let me show you, let me show you how good we're doing. Let me show you everything. And so he shows the greatness of Judah, the riches of Judah, acting as though it's because of him. In his pride, he basically gives the Babylonians his password, the last four digits of his social security number, his birth date, and his mother's maiden name. <laughs> He's like, here, yeah, here's my, here's the sheet that has it all on there. Maybe you could use this later. <laughs> Isaiah comes and says, what did you do? And Hezekiah said, I showed him everything. Everything. And the word of the Lord comes to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 39, 6, a hundred years before the book of Daniel. Behold, days are coming when everything in your house, which your fathers have stored up to this day, will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says Adonai. Moreover, some of your descendants who will issue from you, whom you, you will father, will be taken away and will become eunuchs in the place of the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah, unfortunately, he, he actually sighs a sigh of relief. He actually goes, oh, well, at least it's not going to happen in my time while I'm alive. At least I don't have to deal with it. Just my great-grandchildren, my grandchildren. What a guy. But he was actually one of the better kings, by the way. This is one of the things that you see with the kings, is that there's very rarely do you have like a real, like a righteous king. You have a mostly righteous king. You have flawed people um, with their flaws and their difficulties. Anyway, so the Lord gave advance notice nearly a hundred years earlier that the Babylonians were coming and they were going to take it all. And here we see the word of the Lord coming to pass. By the way, uh, later in Daniel, uh, and, uh, and of course in Revelation, the Lord gives us advance notice of events that will happen in the last days. And he does this so that when it seems like he's abandoned the world and that he's not in charge, that when that happens, that we will know that indeed he's not surprised by any of it. He's still in charge. He's still in charge. When the leader's not who you think it should be, when things don't look how, how you think they should look, he's still in charge. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had a big election, right? And everyone was on edge. 
And right now, most believers are like, most believers are like, okay, whew. Um, some are like, oh my gosh. Some were determined that either way, November 9th was going to be a scary day. Um, but, but here's the deal. Either way the election would have gone. God's still in charge. He's still on the throne. There's a day coming that elections won't go the way you want them to go. There's a day coming that rights will be taken away, that believers will suffer. I've read about it. There's a day coming. And when that day comes, we don't need to bite our nails and freak out because the Lord is still in charge. It doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable, but the Lord is still in charge. The point here is this. The Babylonians look like they're in charge. Nebuchadnezzar looks like they're in charge, but they're not because God knew about this. God prophesied about this a hundred years earlier. Earlier, Nebuchadnezzar's not in, in charge. From a human-based perspective, it looks like the God of Israel has seated his throne, that he is lost to the God of the Babylon, gods of the Babylonians, but he has not. He is still the author. He is still the one in charge. He is still sovereign. He is still the king over kings. He is still the king over presidents. He is still the ruler of dictators. It may feel like the wicked win for a season, but the conflict in the middle of the story may be uncomfortable. It may be confusing, but the God of Israel is still the author, and he's still on the throne. So the first thing that we need to take hold of is the sovereignty of God. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of wickedness, in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of this choose-your-own-adventure book, God is still the author. The second thing that we see, and there's only two points this morning, mazel tov. <laughs> the second thing we see is that this adventure is not simply an individual endeavor. Sometimes you and I are on the adventure we did not choose. Sometimes you and I are on an adventure that we did not choose. As we opened the series in Habakkuk, we flashed back to Moses and the children of Israel as they were about to enter the land. They're standing there on this side of the Jordan, ready to pass over. Deuteronomy 28-30, through 30, the Lord lays the choice before the people, life and blessing, death and cursing. He allows them to peek ahead, tells them, if you choose this, it'll be good. Keep your thumb there. Peek ahead, if you choose this, it'll be bad. And he implores them, choose life so that you and your children may live. And in one sense, here's where there's a breakdown in the choose-your-own-adventure analogy. Okay, When I'm reading a choose-your-own-adventure book, I'm the one making all the decisions about where I'm going. Um, but you and I aren't making all these choices alone and solely as individuals. We are part of a community, part of a people. While certain individuals choose life, while a remnant are the righteous, they choose righteousness and holiness and obedience to the Lord, the people as a whole, the people of Judah as a whole, did not choose life, right? They chose idolatry. They chose all the things God said not to choose. Didn't mean all of them did. Most of them did. Got to the point where Elijah felt like Eliyahu said, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, there's about 7,000 who have not yet bowed me. But he felt all alone. Like everyone had chosen the wrong choice. 
over the centuries, the people of Judah rejected the Lord repeatedly and chose themselves. And as a result of the sins of their fathers and grandfathers, of the generations that had preceded Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael, as a result of those decisions, judgment finally came. And Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah got to taste those consequences. The Babylonians invaded bringing destruction. We pick up in verse 3. Then the king told Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel from royal descent and nobility. Youths without any defect, handsome, proficient in all wisdom, knowledgeable, intelligent, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king allotted them a daily portion from the king's delicacies and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end they were to stand before the king. Now among them were some from the sons of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officer gave them new names. To Daniel, Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Most of us are familiar with this story. We know the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know why we keep saying, we always say their names, you know, their, their Babylonian names, but we keep, keep, we don't ever call Daniel Belteshazzar. Anyway, just interesting. Uh, in fact, we have so often seen the depiction of these stories, for most of us, in cartoon form. Early on, we saw them, you saw them in arch books, maybe when you were a child. You saw them in cartoon form. You see cartoon lions, cartoon fire. They were real. Real fire, real lions. Sometimes we see the, what happens is we see the stories depicted with real people. And of course, if they're depicted with real people, they're depicted in the ancient world with men wearing the robes and the things and all that stuff. So on some level, we find ourselves understanding the story, but not really identifying with it in any real way. But these were young men. They were real, they were real people with real dreams. Verse 4, where we read youths, it actually uses the Hebrew word yeladim, which means children. These were young men. These were children. Most scholars believe they were between ages of 13 and 15. We don't know their exact age, but 13, 14, 15. In fact, just to help us here, I I haven't told them, but what I want is like Caleb and Eric. And where's Santio? I saw Santio earlier, didn't I? Yeah. And if you guys will come up here. I know. Yeah, right? They're like awesome. I feel like um I feel like I'm missing a couple. Where's Son? Uh, I caught him. Where's Sutton? There he is. Sutton, come here, pal. <laughs> All right. We'll take an older one too. Come here, Noah. All right. Because it's easy when these are our boys. When it's our boys, we look at our boys, 
you imagine them being ripped away from their families. They haven't gone through. Their story hasn't begun yet. The difficulties in their stories, the thing, the conflict that makes up our story, we're still in the introduction of the story for them. They haven't, the scripture tells us that these were young men from noble families. They were from the best homes. They had been trained, well trained. They'd had good lives up to this point. When you ask any of these boys what your life going to look like when you grow up, I don't think any of them see themselves spending 70 years in the middle of Iraq. I don't think any of them see themselves spending the rest of their lives in Syria or in Afghanistan. I don't, I don't think that's what they envision for themselves. Um, being taken. Someday I'll be captured and taken away. Never see my parents again. Never see my family again. I'm going to be captured and taken away because of stuff other people did. And their dreams, their hopes, they're just boys with dreams and hopes, with real experiences. They're not cartoons. They're not, they're not flat characters. They're real people. Real people. So as we think of, of, of Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael, as we think of them, these were real boys that when we get to the story of the fiery furnace, you know, that they're a little bit older at that point, it's real fire, it's real death, it's the real end, it took a real stand. The things that they do, and trusting God, um, they're real. And it's important that when we approach Scripture, when we approach the narrative of Scripture, that we ask the Lord to help us to dive into the reality of it. You know, when you guys can sit down. When, when we talk about, you know, I remember, the tra- we, most of us in here remember the traumatic uh, morning of September 11th, 2001. Someday that's just going to be written in a history book. It already is in, in the lives of some. You know, when we talk about December 7th, 1941 and Pearl Harbor Day, uh, we, we, we go past it. But these were real stories and there was real trauma and there were real dreams that were dashed and crushed and there was a lot that happened. These boys had come from good homes. They had been well trained. They had been educated in the finest academies. They're sharp young men. They're the best of the best, the cream of the crop. Their childhoods were privileged. But here, we meet them when someone else has chosen their adventure. They're being ripped away from everything familiar. They're 14 and they've basically been taken hostage. They've been kidnapped. Their parents are gone and as far as they know, they'll never see them again. They're taken from families, taken from home, taken from Jerusalem, away from Israel, from everything familiar, from everything comfortable. And they're thrust into a new land where they're to be trained in a new language and in new ways. They were given new foreign names in an attempt to rip away their identity. Take them while they're young and you can reshape them and turn them into Babylonians. Get them at this age and you can make them into what you want them to be. That was the strategy 
of the Babylonians. Take their best, because now they don't have their best. We have their best, and we're making them into our best. Can you imagine? Can you begin to imagine how deeply traumatic and upsetting all of this would have been if our nation were invaded by radical enemies? And our young people were taken away from their families and given new names, forced to learn their language, no way to communicate back home, no phones, no email, no texting, no internet, no news, not even photographs of back home, nothing familiar. And now you're not even being called by a familiar name. How terrified would you be to go from the comfort and privilege to being captives? How confused and angry would you be Because what we do know, what we come to find out, is clearly these young men were grounded in the Torah. Because at this age they were ripped away and they stood for the things of God. We do know that these were righteous young men. That these were good boys that wanted to be faithful to God. Which means maybe their parents had trained them well. That they had hearts that were aimed in the right direction. Right? So, so... When you say, we've done what you've asked us to do, Lord. We were being obedient to you, Lord. How could you let this happen? How could you rip me away from my family? Why me, God? I didn't do anything to cause this. This isn't fair. I didn't choose this. I didn't choose this pain. I didn't choose this suffering. I didn't make... This isn't a result of my decision. The destruction that they went through was a consequence for the sins of the nation as a whole. Daniel and these guys are suffering through no fault of their own. They're hurting. Their dreams, their hopes, now are getting completely altered. They had visions of the future, and again, those visions weren't in Babylon. And now suddenly they've been ripped away. And so have their hopes and their dreams. And the honest questions might begin to stir within. Why am I having to reap the consequences for someone else's actions? Does God love me? Does God even notice me? Is God paying attention? When it's you. See, this is the thing. When we're talking in generalities, when we're talking about someone else, it's very easy to give nice, sweet, pat answers. But when it's you... When they were your dreams, when they were your hopes, when they were your ambitions, when you saw, when you were a little kid, I think what a lot of adults deal with the most pain about is these dreams that they had as children and as as youths, what my life's going to look like. And when all this junk comes in and you find yourself in your 40s and 50s and 60s going, I didn't see this. I never envisioned it happening this way. And it's in that disappointment, it's in that pain that you go, God, why? Why did you let this happen? Why am I suffering through this? Why am I facing this? Honest questions. God, why don't you rescue me? Why don't you step in and deliver me from from Babylon? Save me from having to live in Babylon. Rescue me on the march there. This morning, some of you may look at circumstances in your life painful circumstances, painful consequences for your for your own decisions, for your own actions. And you may say, you know, I know I deserved this, but God, please give me the grace and mercy to carry through. But some of you may look at your pain and suffering, at the conflict of your story, 
And you might say, you know, I didn't, I didn't choose this. I didn't choose this adventure. Like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. You'd say, I didn't do this. I didn't choose. You didn't choose to be abused. You didn't choose to be abandoned. You didn't choose for your family to fall to pieces. You didn't choose to face the loss that you faced, to face the pain that you faced. Someone else turned that page. Someone else did that. And for me, it's important to say this. Listen, just because something happened in your life doesn't mean it was God's will or that He wanted it to happen. He didn't desire anyone to abuse you or hurt you. It was not, because God's will is not that we would sin, right? Part of living in a sinful world is that when I sin, someone else is on the other side of that. Someone else is getting the result of my actions. I am responsible for my sin, but they're tasting the consequences of that. My wife and my children, they don't get to choose what I do. But the choices that I make, the pages that I turn, have an impact on them, have consequences. And so often the pain that you've experienced has been through the page someone else turned. And God didn't want them to hurt you. And God didn't want them to abuse you. It wasn't his desire that your spouse or one of your parents would be unfaithful and walk out on you and your family. It wasn't his will that influential people in your life say painful and destructive things to you that crushed you. Things that made you feel worthless. And the sinful things that you have done that brought destruction in someone else's life, that wasn't part of God's original plan for you or me either. That wasn't... It wasn't his perfect plan any more than Babylonian exile was his perfect plan for Judah. Right? God saw it. He saw the consequences. But he didn't, he never wanted Babylonian exile for Judah. Just as Daniel and the guys suffered because of the choices of others, many of you have suffered because of the choices of others. But here's the thing. The author of your story and my story can take all those elements, all those painful and hostile circumstances, and make something beautiful out of them. Romans 8.28 says, Now we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Now listen, not all things are good. Right? He can take some disgusting ingredients and make something delicious out of it. That's what he can do. So he can take the horrible ingredients that you've had to face, that you've gone through, and what the enemy intended for for evil and for destruction, he can miraculously do something good and constructive and beautiful in your life. The author cares about your story because your story and my story are an important part of His greater story. Psalm 139 says this, In your book were written the days that were formed when not one of them had come to be. How precious are your thoughts, O God! How great is the sum of them! 
the sum of his thoughts about you, the accumulation of his thoughts for you are all being tied together to tell an epic story. You matter to him. When you feel lost in the crowd and unseen, he sees you. When you feel like nobody understands, nobody gets you, he understands. He gets you. When you feel unloved, he adores you. When you feel unimportant, he values you. God had a purpose and a calling for these young men. He had purpose for them, listen, in Babylon. Babylon was never his original choice. His choice was choose life, that you and your children may live. But when these men, when these boys were taken onto an adventure they didn't choose, God was able to take something of that pain and that suffering and that difficulty and turn it into a story that we're still telling to this day about his faithfulness in the midst of Babylon. God is sovereign in the midst of suffering and wickedness, in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of this choose-your-own-adventure book, God is still the author. And second, sometimes the adventure is not one of your own choosing. Sometimes we're on the adventure that we didn't choose, but He is still with us. The sovereign God over all is with us. Here's the thing. The rest of Daniel chapter 1, look. Daniel 1-2 says, God gave King Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God. Verse 9, Now God caused the chief official to show mercy and, and compassion to Daniel. Verse 17, Now as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and proficiency in every kind of wisdom and literature, and Daniel could understand all sorts of visions and dreams. See, the book of Daniel is not about Daniel. It's not about Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. It's not about Nebuchadnezzar. It's about the Lord. It's this. In Judah, by the temple, Adonai is the Lord. His character is unchanged. And now here in Babylon, here in exile, in a foreign place, surrounded by wickedness, surrounded by nothing familiar, like I'm in the wrong place, here God is still the Lord. He's still unchanged. God causes. in, in Here in Babylon, He still is the one who causes, right? He caused the official to show mercy and compassion to Daniel. God gives favor. God gives wisdom. God gives dreams. God gives Nebuchadnezzar dreams. God gives interpretation. God brings protection. God shuts the mouths of lions. God stands in the fire. God brings down the proud and mighty. God is still sovereign and in control even when the vessels of His house are being held captive. He's still in control. The Lord God is still unchanged. He is still all-powerful. He's not simply a territorial deity who is limited to a region of the earth. He's not powerless outside of Judah. The borders don't affect Him. He's not even limited to earth. He is Lord of all. He is Melchalam. He is the King of eternity. The King of the universe. 
So even when we were ripped away from all that is familiar, from all that ever felt safe and comfortable and normative, even when you feel like orphans and widows, you feel alone and frightened and in danger, the God who knows your name is on the throne. He is sovereign. He is the ruler. These four boys were real boys. And as we continue through this book, we will see that though they had everything taken from them, they kept their eyes on the author who was writing their story. And he was writing a story that was quite different from the one that they had imagined as children. It's a lot different than the story they would have written if they were the authors of their own stories. The end of Daniel chapter 1 says this. Verse 21 says, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Cyrus was the king that ended the exile and allowed the Jewish people to return to Israel and to Jerusalem. So that means that Daniel, a righteous young man, endured the entirety of the exile. As a boy in a noble family in Jerusalem, I don't think Daniel imagined that his destiny was to spend 70 years of his life in Babylonian captivity. That was not the adventure Daniel would have chosen or would have written for himself. But that was the story God was writing in Daniel's life because he had purpose to accomplish through Daniel in Babylon. Adonai was turning pain and displacement, turning loss and trauma and exile into an amazing story that is still being told to this day. The story of His presence that was not tied to a land. His presence isn't tied to a land, not tied to a building, not tied to a structure, but presence that was tied to faithfulness to Him. Whatever your circumstances, whatever your pain or loss, God is still writing your story. He's still giving us some choose-your-own-adventure options day by day. We need to listen for His voice. To listen for His guidance. Listen, He doesn't give us the whole story up front. We're like, God, give me the five-year plan. Tell me what's coming. Tell me what's coming in the next ten years. He doesn't do that. He gives it to us like He did manna, day by day. But He's, listen, we are... We are cooperating with the author. And if we'll listen and say, which page do you want me to choose? Lead me. Guide me. I want to end up where you want me to end up. I want to follow your adventure. I want to do what you've called me to do. The author and the finisher of your faith is telling an epic story in your life. And as you stay faithful to him, you can be assured that he will never leave you nor forsake you, even in Babylon even in exile, even in pain, just because you're in pain, just because you're in suffering, does not mean that God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean that He's not with you. It doesn't even mean that you did something wrong. Sometimes, it's simply part of the story that you didn't choose, but that He can work together for your good and for my good. Amen? So we trust Him. In the good, we praise His name. In the bad, we praise His name. We say, I exalt You, O Lord. 
You are Lord over all the earth. When the vessels have been ripped away and put in the gods, in the house of the gods of the Babylonians, we still say, You are Lord over all the earth. You are Lord over the earth. There is none like our God. When the circumstances of life say God is not on the throne, faithfulness, the righteous will live by faith. Say, Lord, I know you are still the author. I know you are in control. I trust in you. Amen? Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. Messianic Radio, for a spiritually hungry world. Speak to the rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio, changing lives one heart at a time.